Turn, if you would, to the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew. Yes, it is good to be back. I was uh, actually intending to come last week, and I told my wife I just wouldn't touch anybody because I was highly contagious. And when I realized I couldn't stand up, I decided maybe I shouldn't come. (laughs) I had uh, hand, foot, and mouth disease, which apparently is a children's disease, so I probably got it from one of my children. Uh, I kept referring it to it as hoof and mouth disease, and my wife assured me I was not livestock. <laughs> so anyway, after 35 years of teaching, that is the second Sunday that I've missed because of health, which is pretty good, I guess. The previous time I was in the hospital, minor things like that. Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7 are the Sermon on the Mount. We started this about nine or ten weeks ago. Today we finally finish the Beatitudes, which is the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Starting in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven." For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We started about ten weeks ago with that. The poor in spirit are those who acknowledge that they cannot do it on their own. I have spent my life trying to earn righteousness, and the day that I realize that I cannot earn righteousness and that I have to have the grace of God and the finished work of Jesus Christ The gates of heaven open and I am entered in. As long as I believe that I can do it on my own, as long as I believe that some of the glory is going to go to me for making the right choice or doing the right things, then the door is shut. But when I acknowledge that I cannot do it, when I acknowledge my poverty of spirit, then the door of heaven is open and I am allowed to enter. But you know, I acknowledge the fact that I have sinned. And so I mourn for my sin. Blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. We live in a world full of sinners. We sin, we mourn for our sin. Others sin, we mourn for the consequences of the sins of others. But we are told that we will be comforted. We will receive forgiveness for our sin. We will receive the blessings that God has promised to us. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We had a long discussion about what meekness meant. In fact, I think I told you the last time that I taught the Sermon on the Mount, I had more notes on that one verse than any other verse in the whole book of Matthew. Because we have this idea that somehow it's associated with being weak. Meekness is humility. It is the acknowledgement that God is God and I'm not. Having received the kingdom by acknowledging my poverty of spirit, by mourning for my sin, I realize that there is no place in the Christian life for pride. It's God and it's God alone. The things that I have accomplished, it's God and God alone. Blessed are the meek, those who are humble, those who are gentle. As I interact with other people, I need to be gentle with them. In the scripture, we are told that the two most Meekest, the two people that best exemplified meekness were Moses and Jesus Christ himself. I am gentle, he tells people. Wow, Jesus being gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They will be filled. Once we acknowledge that we can't do it on our own, once we mourn for our sin, once we humbly approach God, we go, what can I learn? What can I learn about being righteous? We hunger and we thirst, and 
We in our world today hunger and thirst for a lot of different things. We hunger for power, influence, uh, ease, wealth, all these different things. But Christ wants us to hunger and thirst after righteousness. The strongest desire of our life ought to be to be righteous before God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We talked about the fact that in the scripture, it's pretty clear, and we don't like it, that we will receive mercy when we give mercy. And if we don't give mercy, oh, wait a minute, we probably will not receive mercy. And we go, wait a minute, that doesn't work. What about grace? What about all of that? Having received the mercy of God, and we begin there, the mercy of God is given to us first. Having received that mercy, we then turn around and give mercy to those around us. And if we don't give mercy to those around us, it is a red flag, a warning that maybe we have not truly received the mercy that God offered to us. Blessed are the merciful. Every day of your life, as you interact with other people, you are called to be merciful toward them. Hmm, that's hard. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity of heart, Kierkegaard says, is to desire one thing. You know, our hearts are uh, clouded. They want a little bit of this. They want a little bit of that. As we said when we worked through this lesson, we have this desire to have the things of God. Here are the things of God. Here's what God wants us to do. And we have a desire to do that. But we also have a desire to have the things of this world, to have wealth, privilege, position, etc. And so we spend our lives trying to find the intersection of these two worlds. And you know what? There may not be an intersection of those two worlds. We may have to choose purity of heart to seek the things of God and God alone. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We talked about our mission to seek peace and reconciliation between us and God, between God and others as we share the gospel, and to seek peace and reconciliation between other people. And we talked about the fact that sometimes the world doesn't like this. Because the world wants you to take a side. They don't want you trying to make peace. I thought about this passage just this week as I was in the CVS parking lot watching the two ladies yell at each other across the parking lot. I'm sitting there thinking, should I go exercise the peacemaking or should I just stay away? I drove away. It was a very odd situation. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Now, we finished the Beatitudes, sort of. We have one more to go. If you or I could truly live this life, and I believe it's what we're called to do, I believe God does promise blessings. I believe that we can do these things through the, whole, the power of the Holy Spirit in this world today. Perfectly? Maybe not. But we can do them. You would think that if you did these things, you'd practically be a saint. You think if you would do these things, the world around you would just think you were the coolest person in the world. They would look at you and go, oh, I want to be like that. The world would just treat you with respect everywhere you went. But in reality, we get to the next verse. <sighs> Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Why is it if we diligently pursue the righteousness of Christ, we try to be humble and gentle, we try to be a peacemaker, we hunger for righteousness, 
We do all of these things and the world is going to persecute you. That just doesn't make sense. Until you begin to realize, go to John chapter 1. Go to other passages in the scripture. The light came into the world. The light came into the darkness. Jesus Christ was the light and he came into the world and the world hated him because the world loves the darkness. What we see is that there is going to be an eternal conflict. No, not eternal. It's going to end someday. In this world, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be conflict between those who follow Christ and those who don't. And as much as we might love it if the world just thought we were the coolest things on the planet, the world is going to persecute those who follow Christ. In the scripture, you can go back to the almost very beginning. Adam and Eve created in the garden. Adam and Eve eating the fruit they were commanded not to eat, being kicked out of the garden. Adam and Eve have two sons. Those sons were named Cain and Abel. They presented an an offering to the Lord. Abel presented what? An animal. Sacrifice. Cain presented what? The, The fruit of the ground. God said, I liked Abel's, I didn't like Cain's. And Cain was really, really ticked off. And God says, why are you ticked off? Loose translation. Don't you know if you do what is right, I will bless you just like I bless Abel? But he was still ticked off. So they were out in the field one day, and you can imagine, Cain looked one way, Cain looked the other. I don't know who he's looking for. There's just not that many people around. (laughs) And he killed his brother. He was... We are told in the book of Hebrews, the first martyr. He had done what God had asked them to do and received the blessing of God. Cain had not done what God had asked them to do. And instead of receiving a blessing, his offering had not been accepted. And here we see the pattern. Those who have not received the blessing of God are persecuting those who who do receive the blessing of God over and over throughout the scripture. You go to the Old Testament and you begin to look at the prophets. Some of the prophets did real well, rah-rah. Most of them didn't. They were thrown into pits. They were dismissed by the people. Now, it's fascinating because some of the people being persecuted, God actually rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in the fiery furnace because they refused to worship the idol. And God rescued them from that. Daniel was thrown into the den of lions and God rescued him from that. But you see, God didn't rescue all of them. We get to the New Testament and we obviously see the persecution of Christ. But Christ dies, is resurrected, ascends into heaven. The church is formed. Stephen is grabbed for doing things he ought not do, preaching the gospel. And they stone him to death. The first Christian martyr. You look at the lives of the apostles. Executed, 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 executed. Yes. Shaq and Abednego, huh? But if not, he will still remove us from your hands. So one way or the other, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were going to win in their eyes. You go through the apostles. Every one of them was considered a martyr for the faith. Why? Why could people spreading a religion of love, spreading the gospel of how you can be made right with God, How could they be persecuted for their faith? Because the world is an evil place. 
We've been working our way in the sermon series through the Reformation. Sometimes we forget that John Huss, years before Martin Luther, tried to start the Reformation. He went uh, to a meeting and he was guaranteed safe passage to go to the meeting. He went to the meeting, they grabbed him and they killed him. Last week in the sermon, they talked about John Wycliffe, who was executed for printing Bibles to share the gospel to the people of England. Why is it that in this world we will receive persecution? (sighs) Turn, if you will, to John 15. We're going to get to verse 20, but let's get a running start into verse 20. John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me, this is Jesus talking, that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Question, did the world persecute Jesus Christ? Literally to the death. They thought they had won the battle, but they didn't because he was resurrected. He said, if you were of this world, the world would like you. The world would say good things about you. But if you are not of this world, the world is going to hate you. Get used to it. All of my adult Christian life, this verse has bothered me because it begins to imply that it's not just a possibility that persecution will come. It is an expectation that persecution will come. It is like as you move closer and closer to Christ, the persecution will be there. Huh. Back to Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, there's one thing we need to just put on the table to begin with. We are talking here about persecution caused by doing what God has told us to do. It is persecution because of righteousness. You know, if people say bad things about you because you're a jerk, it doesn't count. If you decide to start robbing banks for Jesus and tithe everything you get out of the bank, it doesn't count because it's not for righteousness' sake. What we are talking about here is me, us, we, doing what we're called to do, and the world looks at you and go, you're evil and wicked. And let me tell you something. That's where we are right now. You and I, hopefully, God willing, will not suffer physical persecution in this country in our lifetime. That's an optimistic comment. You can just put optimistic around there. But we have reached the point where Christians are known as being hate-mongering, evil, intolerant people in this country today because of certain beliefs about morality in this country. And you go, well, maybe we should just keep our mouths shut. Isn't that the right thing to do? 
Remember we had a discussion about John the Baptist, and we're going to have more discussions about John the Baptist, but we did hint at the fact that John the Baptist is going to end up getting his head chopped off. Why is he going to end up getting his head chopped off? Because he uh, was preaching the gospel? Because he was telling people, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? No. He told the king, your sexual morality stinks. Because the king had taken his brother's wife. And the king was ticked off. And the king had him executed. Because... He held on to the righteousness of God. We'll have a lot more to talk about that later. We are talking persecution that is the result of our doing what we ought to do. For us doing the actions that we ought to do, for us speaking the words we ought to speak. And we live in a world that produces persecution. Yes. Good question. Her question was, okay, what if you're persecuted by other believers, so-called, because of your righteous behavior. I mean, let's look at the, Don wants to answer this question. Go ahead, Don. Look who it was that persecuted Jesus. Eventually, the Romans are going to execute him, okay? Eventually, the Romans are going to do that. But there were these group of religious people good old-fashioned religious people whose number one concern was that the Romans not hate them, that the world not hate them. And guess what? This upstart Jesus is going to get the Romans mad at us, and if the Romans get mad at us, we're going to lose our position. And guess what? You can read in magazines all the time, because I do it, of good Christians, you note the quotes or sarcasm or whatever about that, good Christians criticizing the Christians who speak out about certain sexual morality in our country today because they really, really want to find that intersection between the world speaking well of them and the Christian community speaking well of them, and they want to find that place where they can stand so the world will think highly of them. And guess what? The world doesn't think highly of them. The world is just using them. Did I answer your question? Sort of. I read years ago a quote. A guy said that we don't study history to predict the future. We study history so that the future does not surprise us because we learn how people operate. What this verse is telling us is not that tomorrow you're going to be persecuted, although that's quite possible. What this verse is telling us is that you should not be surprised if the persecution comes. Statistically speaking, today, in the world, persecution against Christians is more prevalent than it has ever been. Predominantly in Muslim countries and countries that still cling to a communist ideology. In Muslim countries, Christians are being run out of countries in droves. It is actually interesting. You look at the statistics. For a thousand years, Christians have lived in Muslim countries. They have. They've done quite well in some of them. And only in the last generation have many of these countries decided, nope, we're going to run them out. We're going to kill them or we're going to make them leave and we're going to take all their stuff. 
persecution, violent persecution, is alive and well in this world, which has produced in my mind two separate problems. And I tell you this because I've suffered from both of them in my life. One thought is, okay, they're saying bad things about me. I'm being persecuted. But then I look over and I go, yeah, but over there they're killing them for being Christians, so my persecution isn't really real. Well, the reality is my persecution is real, and yes, there is even more. I mean, there is a scale of persecution. What does it say here? Where does it go? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. There is a scale. I can come up with a sword and say, renounce Christ or I'm going to kill you. Or I can just take away your livelihood. Or I can just belittle you in public so nobody in the public arena wants to even talk to you. Yes, ma'am. Observation. An observation. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's an interesting point. We'll get to that one in just a moment. Her point is the observation that countries that have persecuted Christians have seen a growth in Christianity. What is the quote? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The greater the heat, more expansion. Remember a while ago, we just talked about Stephen being stoned to death? Horrible. Except it forced the church to spread to all the known world. And there was a great revival because of the death of Stephen. Yes, ma'am. With him. Yeah. If you didn't hear that, she had stood at Lottie Moon's church in China, met the current pastor, and a year and a half after meeting him, he was martyred for his faith and his wife. Yeah. It is alive and well in the world today. It should not surprise us. We need to pray for these people, but it should not surprise us. So what happens? What happens to you as an individual when in polite society in this country today, you are called a bigot, you are called something, intolerant, whatever, because of your belief in the righteousness and the standards of God as he has given them to us in the scripture. What happens? Well, at that point, a lot of different things could happen. One, you could shut up and go away. Okay, which is a very common thing to do, by the way. Okay, you must be right. I'll go over here and I'll sit in my corner and I won't do anything. Secondly, you could begin to think, well, maybe it really is me. Maybe I am the bad guy. And at that point, we do need some honest self-examination to look and to see if maybe it is the fact that we're a jerk. You know, they're reacting to me because I really am a jerk. It's a possibility. Christians have been jerks before, right? 
So we examine ourselves. We go, no, I don't think that's it. We ask our Christian friends, what do you think? Am I being a no? So at that point, we over the self-examination, and I, as I said, we do need to do the self-examination. Am I presenting the gospel with love to the people around me? Am I sharing the love of Christ to the world? Or am I just really excited the world's going to hell? I mean, let's face it. You could do that. I don't think it happens that often. I personally have never met a Christian who is excited about the fact the world's going to hell. At that point, we begin to think, well, there's something wrong with me or God has rejected me. When persecution comes, one of the natural inclinations is to think God has turned his back on me. I mean, let's face it. Elijah gets up on the mountain. I mean, he has the best day of his life. You know, he's sitting there taunting the uh, priest of Baal, trying to, they're trying to get their fire started, and nothing happens. He prays to God, and God takes his altar that's soaking wet and just burns that sucker up. I mean, it is a great day for Elijah and the people of God until Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. And all of a sudden, Elijah goes running into the desert, and he runs and he runs and he runs. And he sits there in his cave and he says, woe is me, I'm the only one that's left. I'm the only one. I'm sitting here being persecuted and nobody cares. And God says, no, I've got thousands hidden away who have never bent the knee to Baal. You're not the only one. Here, eat some food, take a nap, and get back to work. Okay, it's a loose translation, (laughs) but accurate. We begin to think that God has abandoned us because of what's going on in the world around us. God's not abandoned you. I always remember that fabulous passage at the end of Romans chapter 8. What can separate us from the love of God? Can this and that and that and that? Can persecution separate us from the love of God? And the answer was no. It isn't that God has abandoned you. It's just that God has a mission to accomplish. So the persecution comes. We can shut up and be quiet. And the world might leave us alone for a while. We do the self-examination. We struggle with whether or not God has rejected us, but we know that God has not rejected us. And then we get to the next step. Oh, I hate this one. What does the passage say? We rejoice. This isn't Job sitting on his ash heap, scraping his boils, going, woe is me. This is, I'm being persecuted, and I'm going to rejoice because of it. Why would they do that? Because it demonstrates that they are doing what God wants them to do. You want the seal of approval of God? It's not a big class. It's not a big church. It's not wealth. It's not privilege. It's that God allows you to be persecuted just like he was. That's heavy stuff. That's not stuff that we want to hear. We want to hear that if I am poor in spirit, if I mourn for my sin, if I'm meek, if I'm merciful, if I'm all these things, the world is going to say, oh, you're such a sweet guy. And some will. That's what the believers are there to do, to encourage each other. (coughs) But as we enter the world, we acknowledge the fact that the world loves the darkness. And I walk into the world 
and I look at the world and I say, you're going to hell because of your sin, but here is the gospel message. Here is what Jesus Christ has done for you. Here is the finished job that God has done. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything. It has all been done for you. That is the gospel message. And I proclaim that. And what do they hear? You're going to hell because you're a sinner. That makes me feel bad. I'm going to get you. Why? Because they love their sin. They love their sin. Blessed are you when others revile you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting that it ends where it started. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if I got the kingdom of heaven in verse 3, can't I just skip verse 10 because I've already got it? Doesn't that make sense? I mean, that's what my mind would say. Why do I need to have the persecution to enter the kingdom of heaven if I've already got the kingdom of heaven the moment that I acknowledge that I can't do it on my own? Hmm. What does that mean? Let's think about this for a moment. I enter the kingdom of heaven. I become a believer. Now, ideally, the next day, I drop dead. Okay? I just drop dead. All of a sudden, I've received Christ. I've gone to heaven. Life is a piece of cake because I'm in heaven. Except for the fact that God has chosen to use you and me as believers to accomplish his purposes in this planet, on this earth. So instead of dropping dead the day after I become a believer, I take my hands and my feet and my mouth and I begin to go do what God would have me to do. I do it a little bit. Next day I do it a little bit better. Next day is not a very good day, but I repent and I grow and I grow and I grow. I go up, I go down a little bit, I go up, and God who began a good work in you will complete that good work in you. That's what the scripture promises. So, today I learned that maybe I'm not as meek as I thought I was and I need to work on that. I go, God, he goes, I know. I said, I need the spirit, and he says, you know, I know. Here's a little help, and that's what the the Christian life is. Sometimes the Spirit doesn't speak to me. A friend speaks to me, who the Spirit says, you need to talk to Kyle because he's not being very meek today. And that's the way the Christian life works. doesn't shock us. And as I work my way through this Christian life, as I work through, there are people who are going to respond negatively toward it. Oh, you're just one of those kind of people. You're irrational, anti-intellectual. I've heard these things. You just uh, Bible thumper, you know. I mean, I had a guy tell me, you know, Christianity would be fine if you just took away all those miracles out of the Bible. I'm going, if you take away all the miracles out of the Bible, we're not saved. Just a thought. And I begin to experience persecution of some level. It can be physical persecution. It can be just people saying bad things about me to me. It can be people saying bad things about me behind my back. And I begin to think about losing hope. But I remember, I remember, mine is the kingdom of heaven. It was my, the, the kingdom of heaven that day that I said yes, and the doors were open. And it is the kingdom of heaven to me today when I'm being persecuted. Because I promise you, I mean, if you're at all sensitive, I mean, if you're not really a jerk, if you're at all sensitive, you don't really want people saying bad things about you. But they're going to say bad things about you. Get used to it. But you acknowledge the fact 
that regardless of what is said against me, I have the kingdom of heaven. That is the promise that is given to me. So here's the question. The scripture talks about our light and momentary afflictions. We've had this discussion in here before because the discussion is what is light and momentary? Well, I had this junk all over my hands for several days and it itched like heck. Okay, was that, that was light and momentary, right? Okay, I'll give it two days. Two days is light and momentary. I have cancer in my body, and I go through the treatment. It takes four months. Okay, four months. Four months is light and momentary. Let me let you in on a little secret. Here's this world, and here's eternity. Now, take this hand and keep going that way. Forever. And here's this world right here. Light and momentary could apply to this entire existence relative to the kingdom of heaven that has been promised to us. So what are we supposed to do when we're persecuted? The scripture tells us two things. We rejoice because we have entered the group of the prophets. What does it say? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're entering a select group who are persecuted for the faith. But there's a second thing that we're supposed to do, and we're going to get to this at the end of this chapter. But I'll give you a hint. We are to bless those who persecute us. Wow. What does that mean? It means that as I am being reviled for my beliefs in God and his scripture, I am to pray for the good of those who are doing the reviling. I am to strive and work for their salvation. We rejoice in tribulation and we bless those who persecute us. It gives us an opportunity to bring them to the Lord. We've used the example in here before. You know, Paul, Saul when he was helping persecute Stephen, but Paul... He's arrested for his faith. He's sent off to Rome. They're going to really keep an eye on him. So every day they chain him to a Roman soldier. Poor Roman soldier. I mean, let's put it this way. You're a pagan, and every day you're handcuffed to Billy Graham. Who's going to win this battle? They think they're persecuting you. All they're doing is giving you a captive audience. Persecution is alive and well in our world today. Physical persecution in many countries of the world. As I said, Muslim countries and those who still have some clinging to communist ideology. We are to pray for those around the world who are being persecuted. If you don't know who they are, talk to the missions committee of our church. Go online. You can find the stories of the people being persecuted for their faith. We need to acknowledge the fact that in our country today, there are those who are reviling and saying things against us. Now, what does it say? Blessed are you when they say things against you falsely. Remember. If what they're saying is true, you really are a jerk. You need to deal with that one first, okay? Let's just get that out in the open. But it should not surprise us when they do that. I read lots of magazines, lots of 
all over the spectrum magazines. And yes, they just look at Christians as, well, it's amazing we let you live in our country today. It should not surprise us. There's one phrase in here that I do think we need to have a few seconds on before we get too far. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. There's lots of discussions about the idea of rewards in heaven. The discussion centers on whether it's fair that some are getting more in heaven than than others. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And also about whether it is proper for you as a believer to seek after rewards. Are you serving Christ just for gain of some sort? Are you serving Christ because you just love him, right? And somehow it's very mercenary to just be doing it in search of rewards. But the scripture tells us that there are rewards in heaven. And we can have long discussions about what those are, except we only have two minutes left. But we need to acknowledge the fact that when we do what we ought to do, it is pleasing to God. It is possible to become a believer and muddle your way through life, not accomplishing much, not really paying attention to what God wants you to do, kind of doing the right things when it's the only thing you can do, and making it because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That certainly should not be the goal and the ideal of any believer's life. First off, as I say repeatedly, there is a red flag in there that says, if I am continually refusing to do what my king asked me to do, maybe there's a problem. But be that as it may, wherever that narrow line exists, it should not be our goal to see how close we can get to that line. Okay? As we progress in the Christian life, God gives us more responsibilities. He gives us more challenges. He gives us more grace to meet the challenges and the responsibility. And there is the indication that he gives us rewards. Some of those rewards are in the here and now. No, it's not money. It's not power. It's not influence. That reward is the peace and grace of God in our lives. But there's also the indication that in heaven there will be rewards. And that some of us, some of y'all, will have a few more than some of us. And I mean, but here's my take on it. When you get to heaven, there's going to be the reward and there's going to be Jesus. What are you going to pay attention to? That's just, I mean, if you get to heaven and you're all consumed of where are my rewards, then there's something wrong with this picture. Right off the bat, just a thought. So, we've ended the Beatitudes. There are those who would contend that the Beatitudes are the basis of all Christian ethical discussions. There are those who would contend that it tells us how we are to live our Christian lives. And I would agree with all of that. We had discussions about the fact that some of them, we read them and we go, I can't do that. And that's the right answer. You can't do it. The Holy Spirit in you can do it. That's the Christian life. But sometimes we read them and it just piles on the guilt when that's not what it's supposed to be doing. What it's supposed to be doing is piling on the blessings because the whole thing is, blessed are you when... God is blessing us when we demonstrate the character of his son. God has created the universe. God has created the universe to function in a particular way. And God has told us how we are to live our life in that world. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work because we're trying to find the world's way of doing things, and God's way of doing things, and we're trying to find that space in between where the world will say nice things about us 
and the church will say nice things about us and that spot may not exist. Either the world hates you or you're not following Christ. That's kind of the passage that the scripture tells us. Pick one. What do we do when people persecute you? Persecute us. We rejoice and we bless them. We share the gospel with them. We show the love of Christ to them. And I might add, I've said this in here before, you know, when it comes to true martyrdom, dying for the faith, there's nothing that says you have to do it. You know, if I know the bad guys are coming in that door, I am perfectly within my moral standing to run out that door that way. I am. The early church actually had a problem where they were so honoring martyrs, people wanted to be martyrs. So they'd walk up to the local Roman soldier and they'd whack him on the head and say, martyr me. (laughs) No, don't do that. If God gives you the opportunity to run away, run away. But comma. When you're stood before the tribunal, whatever it is, it can be a legal entity, it can be a group of your friends. When you're stood before the tribunal and asked, you have to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could have everlasting life. Regardless of of what the consequences of those words are. You have to do that. And God says, Christ says, great is your reward in heaven because so they persecuted all those prophets that came before you. You are joining a great cloud of witnesses. That wonderful chapter in Hebrews that deals with those who live by faith. It actually starts with Abel, but it talks about Moses, and it talks about this person and that person. And the last several verses of it, it just says, and we don't even have time to talk about all those people who were sawn in half, killed for the faith. This happened, that happened, all these bad things. And you know what? In this world, they didn't get what they thought they were going to get. But they lived a life of faith, and great is their reward in heaven. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen all of us. I pray, Lord, that you'd strengthen us, that we could present your gospel in the world today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One more comment before I leave. There is a uh, discussion of, well, if we did just shut up, It'd be a piece of cake, except for a problem. We are called to be the light and the salt of the earth, and that's next week's lesson.